We started last week, and we and again, you can you can follow along. I'm going to do a quick reset because last week we've sort of been picking up off of where we were at Easter, right? When we talked about Jesus rising, and then what we're going to be doing in these summer months is tracing the rise of the early church as they as they begin to grow and expand in the reality of the risen Jesus at work among them, right? So, but what we're doing right now is we're just taking a look at something that happened just a few days after our Lord's resurrection. In fact, the first piece is on the evening of, of what we call Easter Sunday, right? And so I want to reconnect to that, reset everything. You can follow along. There's three ways to do that. You have your Bible, you can follow that way. You get your Bible app, go for that. But if you want to, you got it in the handout as well. So we're going to move through this little passage in the book of John together. And again, we're going to look at the example of a man named Thomas. We're going to talk about Thomas as well. But let's reset John 20, verse 19. That Sunday evening, that would be Easter Sunday evening. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting. They were meeting behind locked doors. And those doors that were locked were, not, were locked not to just kind of, you know, uh, because they, they had a habit of doing it. They were locked because they were afraid, right? They were afraid of the Jewish leaders, were told. And suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. And he said, peace be with you. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And I'm going to make the case, as we did last week, that that's where the secret of joy is. When we see the Lord is when we'll be filled with joy, right? When we truly see him, then they were glad, the older version says, when they saw the Lord. I remind myself regularly that if, if my love for God is, is kind of not sparkling, it's probably because I'm not seeing him correctly, right? Then they were glad when they saw the Lord. It's always a matter of seeing, isn't it? But we know that there are two things to note here. Um, one is good and one is bad. Do you see it? Do you see what's going on? What is the good? The good clearly has to do with that, the fact that, that even after the devastation of the cross, and it was traumatic, it was brutal, it was an emphatic end of a dream. I mean, what happened to Jesus cannot be denied. It could not be denied. It was unbelievable to see the beautiful one end up the way he did. Uh, they were devastated. I mean, we experience loss in our lives, and it can be deeply impactful for us, hard to get past. They had witnessed Jesus. He didn't just die in a, in a way that was kind of an accident or somehow, I don't know, sanitized. He, he died in a fabulously brutal way that was undeniably shocking and unforgettable. The Romans didn't play around. And by the time they were done with Jesus, it was so ugly, they'd never forget it. And so here they are, gathered together. They found their way. The good thing is they found their way back to one another, you guys. They were in a room, an upper room, a place where they had met before. And their friendship and their loyalty to one another was still holding despite the devastation and what they had experienced. That was good. And yet they were hiding. As we mentioned, the doors were locked. The windows are shut. They're afraid that if the enemies of Jesus had their way, they, they too would suffer the same kind of cruel fate as their master. And so, again, they hadn't forgotten it. It was on their minds, Right? And so on that Sunday afternoon, we may assume that, that also more than just the original disciples were there. Uh, we know that that room was filled with followers of Jesus. The disciples were there, yes, but so were a number of women who are mentioned in the scriptures, 
who are remarkable in their own right. And in fact, if the truth were known as we look at the account of the scriptures and the gospels, it was the, it was, I have to say it, it was the women who had held most loyal. The disciples had run. They had fled. The women had found their way towards the cross. And on top of that, they were the ones that made their way to the tomb. Their loyalty did not waver, though their hearts were broken. I see them in the room as well. We don't know how many of them were there. We know a lot of their names. There were a lot of Marys. We know that. Uh, we also know that there were other, others who had attached themselves, who were part of an, uh, another circle of followers of Jesus, very committed, beyond the disciples and some of the women whose names we know. They were there, again, hiding in common love, but also in fear. And it was into that environment that Jesus appeared. Now, remember, two of the, there were only 10 of the disciples there. Two were missing. Who were they? In that room on that Easter evening, there were two gone. One had fled into the night earlier on Friday, and they had never seen him again, right? He made his way on that Thursday and Friday evenings. He was gone, right? Judas had left, not to be seen again. We know that, that again, after that beautiful evening that Jesus had with his disciples, that that following day he would be crucified, right? So that Thursday night was the last time they remember seeing Judas. And they weren't sure, was he sent on an errand or what? But we know what he had gone to do. He had gone to finish the negotiation on something that he was... We've, we've explored it in depth. The bottom line is this. By the time he was done, he, he realized what he had done and he couldn't live with himself. And he did what a lot of people do when they feel like there's no point in it at all. It had not gone the way he thought. He ends up killing himself. Now, they didn't know that at the time, that that's where Judas was heading. No one knew what was going on with Judas, but he wasn't there. The other one that wasn't there, because in a way, the fact that Judas wasn't there wasn't really a surprise at this point. But the fact that Thomas wasn't there, no one really knows why. Like, where was he? What was he doing? It's not clear. All we know is that that, that evening when Jesus shows up in this unbelievable way, Thomas isn't there. Now, and we make the point that Thomas has for Centuries now, somebody brought up to me and said, it's been thousands of years, and his nickname still holds, right? Whenever we think of Thomas, the first thing that comes to our mind is, oh, you mean Doubting Thomas, right? It's stuck with him, Doubting Thomas. Wherever he goes, it's Doubting Thomas. But I want to say that he was not original. I mean, if you look at the scriptures, I mean, Thomas, and there's a couple of really, I mean, one of the things that's fun to do is, and it's insightful as well as to do a character study of the disciples. So you just kind of read how they're described and you know, different incidents that occur. Thomas actually has a couple of them that really stand out. One of the things we notice about Thomas, and it's important to remember, that although he's kind of designated the doubter, the fact of the matter is the disciples had another nickname for him. They called him Didymus, which means twin. And we don't know who his twin was. Did he have a twin sister, a twin brother? But, you know, were they the same kind of kind of uh, personality, or are they polar opposites? We don't know. We know that was his real nickname. His own peers called him and friends. But we also need to point something out about Thomas that is revealed earlier in the Gospels, again, is that he was someone who really, listen, he really did believe in Jesus. And he was actually a fiercely loyal follower. It's true that um, he... I don't know if I would say, he, it wasn't like he was so much of a doubter, like we would say in a classical sense, like, I don't believe, I don't believe. No, he was kind of more, I would call it, uh, he was a realist. 
And he, and it's true, he might have had a, he had a bit of a negative, cynical bent to him, but he was a realist. He loved Jesus. He just, he just had a problem saying things that he didn't believe. And there was a, t- there were certain moments where, when everybody else is thinking something, but nobody really wants to say it, he stands out and he'll just say it, because that's kind of who he is. That's the kind of guy he was. And, and there was, I was thinking, I was looking at different, uh, different examples of it. One memorable occasion is actually listed in your, in your handouts from John 11. Let me set what up happens there. It shows us a lot about who he was. Because in John 11, and again, John 11, what is described here, okay, there's this, Jesus has friends named Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. They are close to the Lord. He loves them. They support his ministry. He's just, he's got a, it's, it's rare to have people described as being that close to Jesus. And we know that this family was. Word gets back to Jesus that Lazarus is very sick, maybe even on the verge of dying. The message comes from Mary and Martha, his sister, There's his sisters, that they want Jesus to come immediately. The hope is that Jesus can heal Lazarus. At this moment, as we hit John 11, though, Jesus is not in what we, the region that we call Judea. Judea is the part of Israel where Jerusalem is located. Jesus had been in Jerusalem. If you go one chapter earlier, at the 10th chapter, Jesus is in in Jerusalem, and they're having all these confrontations. And in these confrontations, it's like there are people who are getting so angry with Jesus in the temple that they actually pick up stones, and they're about to stone him. I mean, literally, a melee is about to break out on multiple occasions. People want Jesus dead. Jesus leaves, though, Jerusalem, and he crosses back out. He leaves Judea and crosses over the Jordan River to the region where John the Baptist originally ministered and baptized. It's there when the messengers come to him that, hey, Lazarus is sick, okay? But here's the thing. They, Lazarus and Mary and Martha are in a town called Bethany on the, not far from Jerusalem. It means that if they go back, they are going back into the region where there were so many people that have been angry with Jesus and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So there's this conversation that ensues, and all of a sudden the disciples are saying, you know, Lord, we just, we just don't think it's prudent for us to go back. You know, let Lazarus, Lazarus is fine. Then Jesus says something about, like, Lazarus is sleeping. And they all say, oh, that's good. What Jesus meant was he's dead, and I'm about to change that equation. And in many ways, Lazarus is a foreshadow because it's just weeks before Jesus' own death and resurrection, a foreshadow of what Jesus himself is going to do, right? However, the disciples, they don't know that. And so they're all, they're all trying to say, this is, Lord, okay, you watch, look what it says here. I'll show you. Look at verse 7. It says, finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. So I just told, remember we just talked about that? But, but his disciples, now this is rare. It doesn't happen a lot. You, you just read, right? Look at that, that eighth verse. That's not common. I mean, I don't know what it looks like it is. It's very rare that you see the disciples going, no, no, don't do that. We object. We don't believe that's right. No, they, they literally, they look at that. It says his disciples objected to him. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea, they were, they were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Look at this. And so he plainly, he told them plainly, look, what? Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm actually glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go. Let's go and see him. Right? And Thomas, here he is, nicknamed the twin, there it is, said to his fellow disciples, now again, Jesus, they're trying to talk Jesus from going. It doesn't make sense. It's not prudent. 
Did you, they just tried to kill you, Lord. I don't think it makes sense for us to go back. Jesus says, we're going back. Thomas says, oh, that's great. That's just great. All right. I love it. I mean, the Bible just throws it in there. Let's just go to. Let's just go. And let's just go and die with him. Okay? Let's just go to die with Jesus. We don't, we might as well. Right? It's just that whole thing he just throws out there. It's, a, it's such a real statement. All right, we're going to go with you, Lord. This is crazy. Let's just all go and die with him. Right? Now, the thing about it was he wasn't actually that far off. Even though this wasn't the incident that is going to happen, weeks later, it will happen. And he's right. They will kill him. But in this moment, Thomas, and I hope you see it, it was frank. It was honest. It's kind of cynical. It's hardly faith-filled, right? Let's go and die with him then, all right? Um, But what was it? It was utterly loyal. Do you see that? It's true, it was all those things, but if you look closely, you see it was loyal to the bone. Fine. Then we'll go meet the end with you. Let's do it. I mean, I don't really even think about that, right? That's so cool. And it was an accurate, again. So now, Moving back through time a little bit, pushing up to the day of the resurrection. All right, Thomas is not, for whatever the reason, Thomas, he, he was with the rest of them when they all ran, but everybody had to regroup, but Thomas wasn't there on that Sunday afternoon for whatever the reason. Again, we don't know. And look at verse 20, uh, 20 look at verse 24. It says, now Thomas, look at what happens. It says, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came on that night. And the other disciples told him, they said, hey, we, you're not gonna, we have seen the Lord, but he, and, and he's alive. But Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of those nails, right? And, and then I, I, I place my hand in his side. I'm never going to believe that. It was a reaction that was, listen, consistent and true. Wasn't it? Right? He could not confess what he didn't believe. They said, we have seen the Lord. Thomas, you're not going to believe it. He's alive. He appeared to us. And you know what Thomas basically says? "Uh Uh-huh. Sure you did. Okay, how about this, guys? I know you believe that you believe you saw the Lord. I'll give you that. But come on. Are you crazy? You saw the Lord. Yes, we saw the Lord. You saw the Lord. Yes, he appeared. You, you, know, you saw something, whatever that was. I don't even know what you saw with your head, your mind, what you're making up right now. But I'm going to tell you this right now. Unless I be, unless I, I'll tell you what. Unless I can touch that, I'll put my finger in his hands that I saw hammered onto that wood. And you know what? Unless I can put my fingers and my hand on that, I saw thrust with that spear. There is not a, I, I'm not believing one thing you say. That's it. I'm, don't even. That's what, we get. That's what we're talking about. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. So eight days pass. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came just as he had done before and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. Shalom upon you. 
the peace of God upon you. Eight days later, Jesus reappears. This time Thomas is with him where he should have been the first time with his brethren. Jesus appears, speaks the peace, right? He scans the room and what does he do? What does Jesus do? As he looks around the room, Thomas, and Thomas is incredulous. Yes. Thomas, please put, put, put your finger here. Put your finger here. Come, come. Put your finger here. Put your hands in my side. Come on. Place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Then Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. It, it, was, it was maybe the most, he couldn't go any higher than that. You can't go higher than that. You can't, that is the highest you can go. My Lord and my God. There's, you can't go any other side. Like he, Jesus calls him up, passes on a skepticism into the highlands of faith. Thomas is overwhelmed, and the honest doubter becomes the great confessor. My Lord and my God, saying what no one else has ever been recorded saying quite that way. And Jesus said to him, blessed Thomas, blessed are you because you, you believe because you've seen me. I know. That's why you believe. But I tell you, blessed are those. Right? You believe because you see me, but blessed are those. Blessed are those who have not seen and they yet believe. And Jesus, we should point out, did not say, what did he not say? Thomas, Thomas, you're getting carried away a little bit here. He didn't say that. He received that praise. You are my Lord and you are my God. Jesus received it, but also he says this, and, and again, it's like Jesus peers down the corridors of time, down through history, it's like he sees you and me. It's like he's looking right into our eyes and he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So let's talk about, let's wrestle with this. Let's talk about keys for rising. I'm going to put a couple things up. I want us to hit it. I want to I go with this. But let's, let's talk about a, a principle, Okay. Let's talk about, let's cultivate, I want to put it this way, let's cultivate faith and guard against the fear of disbelieving what seems too good to be true. Okay, you guys? For Thomas, the idea that Jesus was, as he said he would be, alive, look at that, seemed just too good to be true. Thomas did not want to be a fool. He was afraid to believe. And in one sense, he's to be admired, right? Because... I, but in another, he is a reminder, a reminder that relationship with Jesus, listen to me, can never be reduced only to what is logical or can be scientifically or physically proven. It's not a, it's not a mathematical formula. There's no way. It can't be. Spiritual matters cannot be evaluated in a test tube. Now, I say that also with this. As an early follower of Jesus in my early life, one of the things that did affect me was an articulation of what I called a rational faith. And I remember a reading, uh, specifically um, certain writers, and C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, which he talks about the journey of his faith from an unbeliever to a, well, um, a man who ultimately becomes one of the most advanced thinkers 
on behalf of Christ in the 20th century. Maybe, probably, and maybe even the sing, most singularly um, well-written apologetic of why following Jesus makes utter sense. There have been other books written since things like, you know, Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, a, a, a small little book that actually really affected me early on when I was actually in high school and seriously decide, wanted to decide, do I follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior? And what does that mean? It was a small little book called More Than a Carpenter by a man named Josh McDowell. In that little book, he refers back to C.S. Lewis and talks about the rational faith and how actually the historical record of Jesus is rooted in things that cannot actually be acknowledged. It's rooted in history. Uh, it's also, there can be no question that the band of followers of Jesus were utterly transformed by something that is almost inexplicable to the extent that they were willing to die for something that they would have known was a lie if it was. It's one thing to die for something and to be at, in different places of the world and to be to, and to just be deceived because you believe in zeal. It's another thing to know, and they would have known if it was true or not. They gained nothing. All they gave was their lives for this testimony. There's other things like that that you begin to realize, like even the words of Jesus. People like, in both those books, and C.S. Lewis makes the case beautifully, is that the, you cannot, the one thing we cannot say about Jesus is that he's a good man only. That he's just a good teacher, one of many ways, because he didn't give us that option. So he said, he, he, the claims he made, the praise he's, he accepts, you, he either is who he says he is or he isn't. He, if he isn't, then he is not a good man, he is a liar, or he is crazy. That's the point that is, be, that is being made. Because you cannot say what he said and receive the praise that he received telling other people, be truthful, and then you yourself at the core issue are a liar, or worse, crazy. And yet out of his words come the most balanced teachings that have altered human beings ever. So that's why people like Lewis will say, you, and it's what changes him, you, you can do one of two things, you can accept him or reject him, but you cannot just call him a good man in one of many ways, because he didn't leave that option open. He either is who he says he is or he isn't. If he isn't, reject him. If he is, get down on your knees with Thomas and say, my Lord and my God. Right? That's the point. Now, what am I saying? There is a case to be made for rational faith. I, I have a, I've been affected by it. But hear me out. Faith in Jesus, in the end, is really a matter of the heart. It really is. It's where faith and trust and love reign supreme. What was it? Um, Pascal, the philosopher who was himself a believer, said... Uh, the heart has its reasons that reason knows nothing of. Now, a lot of us look at that statement and go, oh, that's, that's about romance. Uh, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to. The heart has its reasons. But actually, Pascal was making a statement in a case that he was saying that there's actually something inside of us that actually draws us towards God. That it's actually driven more, it's, it's more than, it's, it's like 
It's something deeper. It's, it's different than logic. It's intuition. It's, it's instinct. It's sensitivity. Um, it's a yearning deep within a human being that yearns to know why it's here and wants to live, why, why it loves. It's like, God, it's like he said that the heart has its reasons that reason knows nothing of. There's something more. We're more than just reason. We are that, but more. And that moreness is what draws us towards the Lord. Now, again, Jesus talked about that as well. Some of, now, here's the reason I'm saying that is I think some of us are, are holding back, committing our life to Jesus because we don't want to be duped. We, we get Thomas, right? I'm not going to be duped by that. And maybe some of us go, part of me wants to follow, but then the part of me goes, I'm not going to do it. Part of me wants to do it. I'm going to come right to the edge if I can, but I don't know if I want to go all the way in because, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And, I, I don't, and like what we're saying here is that if we're not careful, <laughs> you're going to miss your moment. You're being invited into a celebration. I, I'm, jump in. If you're going to do it, don't just go to the, go in. That's what the people are doing tonight. They get baptized, right? They're saying, I'm in. I'm going down with him. I'm coming up with him. I'm taking his name over my life. I'm in. I'm in. I'm committing myself to following you. Second piece of this that we notice here about rising, growing, flourishing, is remember the value of fellowship and coming to the church, you guys. Say, for whatever the reason, Thomas wasn't there with his brothers and sisters at a critical time, and as a result, he missed the blessing of our Lord's first appearance to his disciples. Now, it's true, we have all become the beneficiaries of Thomas's absence, reaction, and Jesus's corrective and admonition. But so what I'm saying is we get blessed by the fact that Thomas wasn't there because we've never had the exchange that ends up showing up like we're looking at it right now without it. And yet, we need to acknowledge this, that the principle of fellowship still holds. In crises times... When our faith is assaulted with fears and doubts, and we will have those moments. I've never seen anybody fall. Look, okay. Now, it's been, it's been almost 40 years to start a, a small group with my youth group. Okay? I say that because it actually has been. Actually, it's been 40 years. I say that because I've seen a lot of people start out on fire in their faith for Jesus. And I've watched them sprint out of the gate and just, I just saw, oh my goodness, they're just like growing. Their knowledge base, their love for God, the ferocity of their commitment. I just, it was like a full out sprint. Fly. But then over time, I've watched that thing as it got pressed. It, 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 it's like it, it started getting hit. And as time went on, that faith that was so vibrant started to, I've seen it, diminish, decay. And in some cases, I saw people lose their faith. And I've seen other people who I, I saw, they came, out, they came out of the gate, they came out, they came off the runway, and they came off wobbly. <laughs> it was like, whoo, it was, and I'm going, I don't know if they're going to make it, I don't know if they're going to make it, I don't know if they're going to make it. And then eventually they found their way. And they've been, they've been going pretty good for a long haul. A sturdy faith. One of, the, one of the principles is when we come into these moments where we 
struggle. We will have those moments. It could come, sometimes it comes because of things that happen, are happening around us, things that we start thinking about, concepts, um, feelings we have, disappointments we start having. Uh, I've been doing this for a while. You know, it doesn't work. All that stuff starts to flow. People say other stuff. You know, why are you doing you know, All that stuff comes. Everybody's telling us, ah, don't waste your, you know, all that, that stuff. And when that happens, we're going to, in these places in life, and I'm just, I think a lot of times the hardest place is just when things are going hard for us. We start to get doubts. Is, this, is God really good? I, you know, stuff like, when that happens, do you know how important it is? And it will happen. All of us will have times, yes, where our faith is not strong. And there will be times when we struggle to really believe and trust God. I understand, Thomas. I got it. Like, all will have off game. Listen, we're not always going to be on our game. And if you don't believe me, did you watch the Warrior game last night? Okay, I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. Okay. You know what I mean? We're not always on our game. Even the best in the world can have an awful game. I'm venting right now. I am getting it out of my system. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? We will always, here's why. We will always need the other. Do you know what the value is in having fellowship? Do you know what the value of having church as a, as a rhythm of our life, the one in seven? Some of you who follow me on the Rise and Shine, which is that daily video devotional we do, that's based around the idea that, right, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus taught us the dailiness of the Christian life, that it works well. And then the one in seven is that on that seventh day, we do what we're doing right now. We gather together with others minimally to strengthen ourselves in our faith, to keep the rhythm that Jesus himself modeled as a way of staying connected. We build into, Jesus had a small group. That's why we talk about the value of small groups and being in a ministry. It's out of those contexts where friendships and relationships are established because it's basically coming to one other conclusion. We will not always be on our game and we will have seasons of doubt and seasons of discouragement and seasons when our faith is not strong. In those places, having these patterns and rhythms and rituals established in our life and the relational strength that comes out of it is what carries the day frequently. I mean, the tendency is to do what Thomas does. When things are hitting, we isolate. When things aren't going well or we come through a trauma, the tendency is actually to pull away instead of pulling into community, right? Remember this, we are always better when we're together. I've been hearing me say that a lot, haven't you? You know what? I'm going to have to have you do it. I'm going to have to have you. Can you do me a favor? Look at the person on your left and right and say, we're better together. Go ahead, say it. Just say it. We're better together. Come on, that's the Christian life. <laughs> We're better together, right? We're never meant, it's not meant to be a solo walk. It was meant to be done together. And that's why, we, listen to me, some of us might go, oh, I don't really like the relational stuff, you know? And people know, ah, that's not my thing. Ah, the value of being known, the value of doing the hard work of connecting isn't really, doesn't even really show up when we're doing well. It really shows up when we're not on our game, when we're struggling in our faith. The value of rhythm sustains us. The value of the other can hold us, encourage us. I bless you. You bless me. You might be running well. I might be struggling. If we can stay together, strength will come when we need it most. Okay, here's the last thing. We'll leave it here. And I didn't know exactly how to say this, but I'm going to say it this way. Stay with me. Honest faith 
is better than honest doubt. Now, honest doubt is real, and it will not confess fully. What am I talking about? What is honest doubt? What I'm talking about what, what will not confess fully what it isn't convinced of. Honest doubt says, I will not be fake. Honest doubt has an aversion to pretense. I will not do it if I don't believe it. Honest doubt says, I want to believe, but I just can't fully confess right now what I'm not convinced of. And to some degree, I get it. I, admire, I do, to some degree. I find it admirable. But it pales in comparison to honest faith. Because honest faith, faith always tilts towards God. Honest doubt tilts away from him. You know what I was trying to think of the image in my head? It's like this. Imagine this is God and this is us. Honest doubt tilts this way. You know what honest faith does? With the doubt, it tilts this way. Honest faith tilts this way. Honest doubt tilts that way. It pulls me away. Honest faith pulls me in. And look at that. Look at what that becomes. There's a strength in that. There's a strength in that. There's a leverage point. And on, what's on that, some people said to me after one of the services, they said, and God's leaning our way as well. It's powerful. But the idea is this. When we are in these places, which way do we lean? It's not about not having doubt. It's, like, it's not about having sometimes questions or struggles. That's not what I was. No. Where, which way are we going to lean? Are we going to lean this way? Or are we going to lean this way? This way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But when we do move his way, lean his way, tilt his way, strength comes. You see what I'm saying? Again, honest faith doesn't pretend there are things are good when they're not. It, it, it doesn't mean it, we never struggle with doubt. That happens every now and then. I will say this, the more and more we feel the real presence of Jesus. I bet you've heard me say this before. You get ruined, ruined for grace, because you can never be the same. When you really feel the Lord's presence at work in your life, you almost can't, you can't go. It, how can I pretend what I what I, I what can I go back to? It's like Peter saying, "You have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go?" Someone said to me, "Hey, but God, you can always feel God. What happens when you don't feel God?" I say, "Okay, I came to church this morning early. Uh, I looked up in the sky." It was just clouds, clouds, overcast. I couldn't see the sun. But guess what? The sun was there. I just couldn't see it because the clouds were covering. Some things don't always make sense to us. It doesn't mean they don't make sense. We don't always see the sun but it's still there. Remember that. Remember that. And let faith rise up in us. Tilt towards God. Better together. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord.
We thank you for your promise. We thank you for your words. We thank you for the power of your truth at work in our lives. I ask that you would help us. Meet us where we are. Remind us that ours is both a rational faith, but in the end, it's a matter of our heart. Help us to lean towards you, not away from you, and to give you, Lord, the, the blessing of investing in the relationships to build that community that will support us in the times when we need it most. I pray for a vibrancy of faith and a blessing over everyone who's in this room. And as we close out this time I ask that you would not only bless our a quick time of giving, but also, Lord, our closing song. Let it just be a nice way of bringing everything back together. We love you. And for those of us who are right there, help us to jump in and not be afraid. We ask this in Jesus' name. Rise up among us, we pray. Amen. Amen.